Hello and welcome to Nearly Sacred, Episode 4, a podcast dedicated to all those things mystical, spiritual, or at least nearly so. I'm Jill Bosertzinger, along with... Melissa Sims. Our sponsors are Alchemy, our own little metaphysical store located in the heart of Princeton, Kentucky. Today our guest is Rich Merrick. Stick around and I'll introduce him. Richard Merrick has dedicated his life to blending science, technology, and art into innovative digital media experiences and exciting new forms of communication. As founder and CEO of PostFuture, a pioneering rich media communications provider for Best Buy and Microsoft, he led the company to become the fourth fastest growing high-tech company in Texas. Prior to this, he was the technology founder and later CEO of 7th Level, a global global CD-ROM game publisher and internet technology company known for such award-winning titles as Toonland starring Howie Mandel and Monty Python's The Quest for the Holy Grail. Merrick's work spans diverse areas of digital media, including search engines, graphic operating systems, multimedia applications, interactive games, voice response web agents, and dynamically personalized internet communications. Because of this, he has been invited to speak around the world on the future of digital media and cited as an expert in leading publications. Outside of technology, he is a jazz pianist and composer, an artist in oils, writer, and independent researcher. He received his BA, magna cum laude, and MSCS degrees from the University of Texas, Dallas. It's my pleasure to introduce Rich Merrick. Hey, Rich. Hi. How are y'all doing? We're doing great. How are you? Uh, wonderful. I'm up in uh, the mountains in Colorado, and it's uh, going to snow here today again, so I'm always happy when that happens. Are you having a snowpocalypse? No. no well, actually, the same, um, the same storm that hit the East Coast uh, came through here a few days ago, and we had a pretty good whiteout blizzard, uh, but it's sunny now, so... I'm happy to be on the show. We're we're very happy you're here. Yeah, we're glad you're here. Excellent. So I thought I would start off, Rich, with um, asking you about some of your latest research and interests and uh, sort of describing it for maybe a bird's eye view so that people know sort of what you're into and what you're about. Sure. Well, it, it's it's interesting. The story of how uh, I, I, my research has progressed over uh, over the years is... Uh, is an interesting thread. I actually began my interest in uh, harmonic science, and that's uh, the study of, of harmonics uh, and how that applies to pretty much everything. I started that back in the uh, late 1970s. Uh, I didn't know that that's the direction I was heading, but I uh, began to ask a lot of the questions that people were asking back then, which is, how is it that we perceive music? Uh, how, how is it that we can anticipate uh, the direction that chords will progress, for instance, or uh, feel the tension uh, and, and resolution that you find in music? And so I started studying that, and I was quickly uh, taken into studying uh, the patterns uh, in music uh, and trying to represent those mathematically and graph them in computers. Uh, back then, the Apple II was all we had, and everything was so incredibly slow that uh, I found that I needed to uh, pause my research in, in that area uh, to wait for uh, more information to um, uh, become available and for computers to get faster in order to be able to do some of the things I was interested in. Uh, and that took me into uh, my computer science career, which did follow uh, the development of audio and video and other kinds of multimedia and interactivity, 
uh, in computers and then ultimately the internet. And so I kind of had this parallel uh, career that was driven by my interest in music perception and music theory. So I started up some companies and um, continued to research whatever I could find uh, in that area, which that really started to explode as the internet uh, got traction in the late 90s and early 2000s. And um, uh, finally was in a position to be able to retire uh, nine years ago, about uh, nearly 10 years ago now, uh, to dedicate my uh, myself to full-time research into into this. And what I didn't expect for it to take me into all the directions that it did, I, I started out uh, researching uh, really the history of music theory just to get just to understand what uh, what happened, <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, you know th- what happened was um, you had uh, the Roman Catholic Church, uh, the Roman Empire um, was uh, focused on on creating s- sacred music, uh, mm-hmm. and there were rules for sacred music, and those became part of uh, the church's canon law and became a central premise upon which. Uh, philosophical premise, really, that they they founded uh, much of the church. So music was a central part of religion, and that, and that precedes the the, um, the Catholic Church. It goes back to the Greeks and even goes back to the Babylonians. So mm-hmm. it's um, and, and of course you've got the entire uh, Eastern uh, religions that are founded on concepts like shabda or the sound current, which is uh, the idea that Everything functions somewhat like music mm-hmm. in, in a harmonious fashion. So, uh, so there's a history aspect to the, that's at the foundation of my um, interest in music theory. But there's also a lot of uh, new research and studies, uh, scientific studies that uh, give us um, a view into the brain and into uh, into physics. Uh, into uh, astronomical aspects uh, that that uh, the ancient Greeks would call music a universalist or music of the spheres. Uh, the idea that that everything in nature is uh, at some scale is like music, mm-hmm. and that's really what the study of harmonic science is, and that's where I ended up heading in my first book, which was uh, entitled Interference. A grand scientific musical theory, and so it it was a it was a uh, an attempt to blend or recast uh, scientific concepts into musical concepts, mm. uh, simply because that's the way things used to be, and uh, people could grasp uh, complex uh, ideas or concepts about the world around them through. Uh, a direct relationship with music and the emotions that that music evokes. Um, so anyway, that ended up moving further into um, into mathematics and becomes very technical. Interference uh, is a pretty big book, and uh, it, it got into areas like uh, music visualization and um, uh, identifying these musical concepts in the structure of the human body, the structure of life in general. Um, so this and, gets, uh, 
This gets yeah, deep really, really, really fast, really quick. And one one qu- quick question that comes to my mind or a thought <clears throat> is that the Catholic Church, um, this is going to get into, and I could be wrong, but I, it just it's popping into my mind about where they kind of were controlling the frequency, the 440 versus the 432. Uh, tuning. It, right, the tuning of the music. And... Um, they were very, very controlling over what music could be played and and how it was played. And my curious, a curious question I have in my mind is, how do you think that music plays into the spiritual aspects of worship, and um, how that affects humans, and 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 mm-hmm. and what what you know, uh, why would why would somebody want to control that, in your opinion? Right. Well, you know. There, that that question has uh, generated uh, whole new fields of research in science. There's the science of psychoacoustics. Um, there's the science of um, archaeomusicology. <laughs> you know, there's there are new uh, new fields that are popping up um, as uh, here in recent years as people have been asking that very question. Um, because when you go back uh, and you look at some of the, the most ancient temples, um, you know, the Hypogeum in Malta and um, um, uh, the uh, New Grange in Ireland, uh, these are very old temples, and yet they share this, uh, they share something. They share a particular frequency uh, that they are tuned so the way they tuned these, and these are these are both underground or quasi underground uh, temples, mm-hmm. and they tuned them by um, carving out the chambers in these uh, underground um, temples, or medit- they're really incubation chambers, or um, you know, which is the term that the that the Greeks used, where they would go into caves and they, that would be dark and uh, they would chant and and uh, you know have basically be visited upon by the the gods and goddesses. We we should and uh, this particular l- frequency. Yeah, go ahead. Let me interrupt you there for a minute, Rich. The uh, we should probably say for the viewers that the way that they were carved is actually a manifestation of sound. In other words, the shape, yes. the, the the metrics and all that is is based upon the sound itself. Correct. Yeah, they're, what they're doing is just trying to create chambers that will resonate at a particular frequency. There we go, yeah, that. Okay, and that frequency, uh, according to a um, Princeton study of ancient structures, is tends to average around 110 hertz, hmm. uh, 110 to 111 hertz. Now, there's, you know, there's some places or that, are a little bit below that, maybe 108, and some that are above it, 114 or 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 more, a little more. But they tend to average around that. Now, their theory for why that was the case uh, is that, well, it it uh, you know it it resonated with the male voice for chanting. Hmm. However, and, and I think that that's that's part of the reason. The other part of it uh, comes from a um, a study, uh, and I believe it was Stanford uh, study. I could be wrong. Maybe UCLA. At any rate, they, there's a study that 
that uh, that was based on the Princeton study to go and see if there's particular frequencies that have effect on the on the brain uh, psychoacoustically, and they found that 110 hertz uh, is sort of this magic frequency that switches focus of the brain from the left brain, from the, the rational uh, language center to the right brain, empathy, compassion, submission, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so. Um, if you're looking at a particular frequency to use in a religious ceremony or religious rite, you would probably want a frequency around 110 hertz to, you know, to enhance uh, compassion or to, to, to shut down the language centers, the logic centers. Did, did you actually find that that's the case for a lot of these Catholic hymns that you were mentioning? Did they actually kind of resonate to that? or? Well, so the, my second book was The Venus Blueprint, and that was, I went off in that direction, uh, which was basically that book proposed that, uh, that ancient temples were based upon a particular pattern, a geometrical pattern, that was the um, orbital... The, the pentagonal orbit of Venus. Mm. And so there's the, suddenly you get sort of both an astronomical aspect pulled into temple building as well as an acoustical, uh, well, a geometrical, uh, and then an acoustical uh, property that is associated with that. So they're all uh, different manifestations of the same thing, which is there is something uh, fundamental in the structure of nature uh, that it, it has to do with um, harmonics. And so you can see my interest in harmonic and harmonic perception would then move into psychoacoustics and, uh, ge- and architecture and geometry of sacred spaces, as well as the symbolisms that help give you a clue as to what's going on. Right. I believe uh, Schwaller de Lublowitz's work, mm-hmm. The Temple of Man, was probably the modern work that kind of started to talk about a lot of that. Um, there's probably somebody else that did it before that, but I think he's the most widely known. Yeah, he he is. Uh, but, you know, you can go back, and of course, that's he, his focus was on uh, the Temple of Luxor. Right. And his, uh, his research was that uh, the temple was organized according to the, the um, layout of a human figure, uh, human proportions, and that there were even uh, sort of special rites that were held in the uh, part of the temple that was uh, the the brain, <laughs> the head, mm. and that there were that you would have to go through certain rites in order to enter through certain portals, you know. Right. Um, but this, you know, that was the Egyptians. Uh, there was, uh, you know, there was a huge. Um, uh, and there still is uh, a huge movement in India uh, in Vedic temple building and the traditions around that that uh, are also based on the human figure and uh, and proportions and symbolisms. And uh, the, it all comes, I believe, uh, it all comes from the idea that the human body is a resonant instrument and right. that um, that you know, you build the space that you go into as if you're walking into uh, the resonant instrument of a giant human body that could be, in fact, an embodiment of the God, and that that temple then is kind of a transceiver into the sky or into the heavens uh, that translates, uh, that resonates with the gods. 
Right, and the, the Rig Veda, I believe, says something along the lines of it wasn't really by anybody. It was just the sound that was there. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the sound current is is sort of the English description of what that is. But uh, they had this belief in um, that that the whole universe was created out of music. It was a musical structure that resonated down from the sacred mountain, and that was called Sruti, and um, and it's in everything. And that uh, Shabda is the voice, the the sound of the voice, and that that uh, you know that that was also uh, well, that was a derivative uh, of of uh, Shruti, and that. So you have this musical concept uh, of music coming down from the heavens uh, where the gods dance and uh, and that everything is sort of spun out of that. And I think that that's an accurate, <laughs> that's, a, that's a simple, accurate mm-hmm. description of what, mm. of what the universe is. Uh, it's just a matter, it's, it's, it's just a matter of, of um, adding detail to that and creating systems around that that integrate those old concepts with the current sciences. Very interesting. That, that kind of keys off some questions I have in my mind, but we're going to take a quick break right now and we'll be right back. Hey, Joe Bill. Yes. Can astrology tell me why I'm so awesome? Sometimes it depends like on the why day. I'm so sexy. I kind of doubt that it's going to be able to like tell why you that. Everybody there wants is no me. way it can say that, but it can tell you other what? things. What? Why not? Because that particular fact can't be covered by astrology. Is there a sexy house? No, there's not a sexy oh, house, okay. but there is a death house. Yeah, gotcha. So can you tell me, um, how would I get this chart? The best way would be to call 270-564-777-1 or go to Alchemy in Princeton, Kentucky. Where you can see me. Where you can see me. Okay, I'm out. Hi, and welcome back uh, to Nearly Sacred. We're speaking with Rich Merrick. And Rich, we kind of left off. Um, I had a question in my mind about um, using sacred music and uh, how it can affect the body. And my theory goes into into this idea of um, if they were using sacred music um, to... Um, get a human being into the right state by using uh, different frequencies and um, to open up the spheres. Um, how can that play on a personal level, like in a microcosm? How can we use music and uh, what's your research show about using music um, um, in order to maybe, quote, draw down a spirit into our own temples? Because, you know, the Bible talks about we are the temple of God. So... What, what what are your views on that or or possibilities or potentials? Sure. Well, you know, I, I uh, my research began in uh, tracing the uh, Roman Church uh, in its use of music in sacred ceremonies, uh, and what is it that uh, makes up sacred music? What why is some music sacred and other music not sacred? And, uh, and this involved not only looking at uh, the Roman church and its traditions, but going back uh, further, because they inherited their views of sacred music from uh, Roman temple worship and before that, Greeks, and you can keep going back to uh, Babylonia and so forth. But the, thing, the thread uh, through all of that 
is that they're trying to create, they have a sacred space that's a temple or a cathedral or uh, some space that they want to sanctify. And so they only want music that they believe is sacred. The Roman church, and this was inherited through really from the Pythagoreans, if not earlier, um, had this view that the devil, that every, both you know, God and the devil were in music. And what they wanted to do was bring out the God part and get rid of the devil part. Mm. And so they created a set of rules uh, that were cast into, uh, uh, into canon law in 1234, so very, one, very two, long time ago. One, one two, three, four. <laughs> yes, one, two, three, four. And it's very interesting that, uh, that they chose that particular year to do it, and I believe it's you know, part of their numerology right. symbolism, because you can find a lot of that uh, in the Roman church. But uh, a lot of those, when I trace that back further, uh, those rules further, it goes back to uh, Charlemagne and the Carolingians, Carolingian uh, period, mm. and uh, and so there was a whole history of hundreds of years of music theory being accumulated um, through different uh, threads that became canon law at that time, and then that became the foundation of what we know of as Gregorian chant, and uh, and so those laws uh, still exist today uh, in the Catholic Church. Now there are, uh, you know, there are. Uh, there's plenty of non-sanctified music that is played in Catholic churches today, uh, unbeknownst to the people, to the to the priests and the the people there. But uh, in terms of the actual ceremonies, they still are uh, Gregorian chant oriented and do follow those rules. Well, what are those rules? There's one basic rule, and I was I was taught this. I, I studied uh, music in undergrad, and uh, I had a a theory teacher or a composition teacher that was teaching pre-Baroque or Renaissance the counterpoint. And I couldn't understand, and I was frustrated with the fact that there were so many rules to building, creating counterpoint. And, uh, you know, I asked him why, and, um, and, he, and I asked him two or three times in open class, uh, it was a large class, and he said, he said, if you really want to know, stay after class and I'll tell you. <laughs> he didn't want to say it. <laughs> dun, he didn't dun, want dun. to tell me what it was in the class itself. This is the special session. <laughs> yes, the special session for the people that are just, you know, um, too curious for their own good. Yeah. So I uh, stayed after. And there was a couple of other people that were curious to hear what he had to say. And he said, he said Richard, all of these rules boil down to one thing, and that is they're they're wanting to create music that does not have uh, what they call Diablo in uh, Musica, mm. or the devil in music. Mm. And I said, well, what's the devil in music? He says, that's, it's the tritone. Huh. Well, the tritone is three whole steps. It's actually half of an octave. So if you think of God as being the unison and octave in music, then the devil is midway between it. It's the half octave, or the tritone. Be a four, wouldn't he? Is a half octave? It's an augmented fourth or a diminished yeah. fifth, yeah. Um, and and so uh, he said all of these rules are to avoid touching this particular interval because if you did, you were letting the devil into, into the sacred space. Um, and so, uh, of course, that uh, made me very curious. Uh, okay, when did this begin? And... Uh, 
why did it begin? And uh, we, it, it's it's a bigger story than we have time to go into in this right now. But I can, Dang it. I, I thought initially that it was the uh, that that it was really the Roman Church that invented that initially. But as I began to research, I found that they had inherited that fear of the tritone um, from the Greeks and from the Pythagoreans in particular. Huh. Hmm. And uh, and it has to do with the construction of the Greek modes. Um, and Pythagoras, if, if Pythagoras was a real person, because it, it may have just been a group of, uh, you know, a cult. Right. Because py- Pythagoras means Pythonagoras, which is serpent meeting. Mm. So, you know, it's hard to know if Pythagoras is a real person. But, you know, I, we speak of him as, as if he was. One way or another, uh, this, this Pythagor- these Pythagorean concepts of music, harmony, and nature... And that that uh, everything was harmonic, except when you started trying to split the tritone down in, into simple harmonics, and that's where it all breaks apart. And you find that 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 when you try to do that harmonically, you end up in a spiral, uh, a chaotic, you know, spiral to infinity in the middle of the octave uh, mm-hmm. when you're trying to do it, um, you know, trying to to um, uh, represent the tritone. Uh, in in harmonic terms, simple, you know, uh, numerical uh, ratios, and uh, and so uh, the Pythagoreans were said to you know cast out or even um, even execute people who would talk about the tritone. Wow. <laughs> so that, that's wow. a it was real fear. It broke their model of a of a harmonious universe. You see, hmm. and. Uh, and yet, uh, as I came to find out, this this the spiraling aspect uh, of nature is integrated into the harmonic or resonant circular aspect, uh, and it it becomes really a foundation for a whole theory of perception and understanding um, how nature works as a balance between the two, between a spiral, an open spiral, and a closed circle. That's really geometrically. Um, where you end up sounds like a portal yeah so this idea has rippled through thousands of years and became a a tenet a basic tenet of sacred music in the roman church well this began to break apart uh, with the protestant reformation with martin luther and the breaking away of um, papal Rule and and canonical canon rule canon law, uh, which really uh, began in southern Germany uh, with the followers of Luther and the rise of um, uh, Protestantism, mm-hmm. and uh, the central uh, uh, prosecutor, as I like to call him, of this breakaway uh, from the music tradition is Johannes Sebastian Bach. Mm-hmm. And Bach um, was born at just sort of the right time after the Reformation to be coming into his prime, and he was writing music for the Protestant uh, churches, uh, the Lutheran churches in Germany. And since they didn't have the canon law uh, for sacred music, he began to play with the tritone. He brought the the devil to the Protestants. (laughs) Yes, the devil in music, okay? Yeah. The Catholic devil in music. Welcome to the jungle. (laughs) Yeah. 
<laughs> and, and, so, and he, he just kept uh, adding more and more and more tritones, and he uh, glorified the tritones. I mean, there's, there are, there's music that he's done that uh, it's just a swirl of tritones and uh, going diminished chords. Is, uh, tritones have, are in diminished chords. And so he'll use these um, uh, to almost, uh, in his view, glorify God. So his view was that the tritone was not the devil. It was just part of nature and part of God. And during that period, um, you know, where you have uh, the Renaissance uh, that has now transitioned into um, the Baroque period in music, uh, and, and Baroque means irregular pearl, so it's, it literally means broke, like broken. Huh. And so it was broken music according to sacred uh, sacred rules. Have, have you ever read uh, Gerdell, Escher, and Bach, Rich, the book uh, by Hofstetter? Sure. Yes, I, I read that right after it came out back in the 70s and was a real <laughs> fan of that book and of Hofstetter. Yeah, he uh, he mentions in that that self-referentiality that Gerdell struggled with so much that you know basically caused him more or less, some people argue, to lose his mind. But in it, Bach is typified in that you know, making the fugues and, and constructing them and how he can do it both forwards and backwards is kind of being like Escher and all that, the, the artist mm-hmm. with the, the staircases going up and down. And so I wonder if it's the self-referentiality of that tritone in part that they're resisting because, you know, you can't really go anywhere with it. It's it's both up and down all at once, if that makes sense. <clears throat> yes, there's actually been um, back in the, well, in the 70s, but then in the 80s also by... Um, uh, uh, a, a cognitive psychologist by the name of uh, Roger Shepard, and then his um, his colleague uh, Diana Deutsch, who who continued to to uh, pursue his work in uh, understanding this ambiguity of the tritone. They they felt that that was uh, at the heart of music perception, and it is. Um, this ambiguity, uh, and the ambiguity is that uh, depending on how how you frame it, the tritone can resolve upwards or it can resolve downwards. Right. And uh, and that this actually uh, can be found in the inflections of different uh, cultures of, of languages in different cultures. You know, for instance, the Canadians uh, tend to end their sentences, and the British too, uh, in an up. You know, an upturn, uh, but the Americans tend to be uh, in a downturn, right. just like I just did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right, right. And because uh, otherwise, it'd be a, in a downturn. You know, <laughs> right. I mean, there's so so there's the, this ambiguity of the tritone is actually you know baked into um, the psychology of cultures, and and, wow. uh, and so they did quite a bit of research with with subjects, and uh, I cite a lot of that uh, information in my first book interference but it it is it is related to this idea of incommiserability that's the the fancy word for this uh schisma right. as the greeks called it in the center of an octave uh, at the tritone and uh and so the roman church was trying to get rid of that incommiserability that uh, com- that complexity of um of spiraling infinity that occurs there because they saw that as the chaos of the devil. Well, they, and uh, by creating lots of rules to eliminate that, then 
the uh, the church could have a, a sanctified um, area. And that was at the heart. It wasn't so much the frequency, the reference frequency or the tuning frequency that they were focused on uh, in those laws. It was it had to do with the intervals, the proportions and that. Right. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so that's. That's, I think, answering your question to some extent. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's very interesting because a lot of the, I think a lot of the mysteries hinge on that, that Trinity subject. Um, you know, you get into maiden, mother, crone, and father, son, holy ghost, and I believe in yours, it's the three pillars, the Shekinah and the, the prince and the, what was it, the prince and something else in your Venus blueprint? Yes, the three pillars in, in Rosalind Chapel, for mm-hmm. instance, which, mm-hmm. which you know, again, goes back to Solomon's Temple and, um, you know, the, the uh, you know, the Masons, I mean, talk about those, the three pillars, or really, it's the two pillars. Uh, in Rosalind Chapel, the middle pillar, the Shekinah is the, is representative of the sacred feminine. Right. And the pillars on each side of that. Um, are uh, the, the Masons would call it Joachim and Bose, but it was really uh, uh, Solomon and his father David, right. <laughs> you know, yeah. kind of. And and so it, it was kind of this father son, as you were mentioning, uh, concept. Which, if you go further back, it becomes the sun and the moon. Right. Yeah. A lot of people think of the moon as feminine, but originally uh, it was because if you think about it, it eclipses the sun. Uh, it's exactly the right size, um, you know, such that you can, the, the moon can eclipse the sun. And so uh, they were viewed as kind of, uh, if the sun was male, then then the moon was also male. All right, Rich, uh, we got to take a quick break in here to give our viewers a chance to come back. We'll, we'll yeah. touch more on the subject and with Rosalind Chapel. Have you ever wanted your own real-life Da Vinci Code? Well, at Alchemy, in Princeton, Kentucky, you can have just that. We specialize in being able to orient people along their spiritual path. Sometimes the symbolism can be confusing, but with enough experience and interpretation, we can help point people in the right direction. If you're interested, schedule an appointment today, and we'll begin the journey together. Number to call is 270-564-7771. Welcome back. We're talking with Rich Merrick, and we were just starting to get into Roslyn and um, some of the mysteries of it. And so the first thing I guess we could talk about that's the most well-known in Roslyn are the three pillars, which Rich has had some experience with. So what do you have to tell us on that, Rich? Well, okay, so the the entire structure of Roslyn Chapel is just, it, it's really a um, an incredible story uh, in stone. And it it really tells, I think, the history of religion, uh, and uh, I didn't realize that when I first started studying it, but the more I got into it, the more it, it took me back in time. Well, so the, the general structure of the floor plan of Roslyn Chapel is a double square. It's two squares end to end. And as I came to find out, that was a pretty common um, uh, floor plan, and you find the, those floor plans uh, today in Masonic temples, in Mormon temples. But if you go back, you find that uh, oh, that was the uh, that was the general layout of Solomon's temple was a double square um, in the core uh, area. Uh, you have um, double squares found in other 
chapels, medieval chapels and cathedrals. You go back, you find them in uh, Greek and Roman structure, uh, structures, and you find them uh, in the, even in the king's chamber of the Great Pyramid. It's a double square. And so I began to go, well, what's so special about the double square? Well, it's really um, uh, a preservation of the uh, Pythagorean theorem, and uh, it has a particular acoustical effect. So if the proportion uh, is, is one by two, which is a, a double square, then the diagonal is the square root of five, because Pythagorean theorem would say it's one squared plus two squared, Right, uh, and then the square root of that, right, and that's square root of five. Well, um, the square root of five is where the golden ratio gets its irrationality, which is you know a famous constant of nature. Uh, and uh, the thing that a lot of people don't realize about the golden ratio is that that proportion um, is a damping proportion, and so. What you have in Rosalind Chapel and many other sacred spaces is, uh, in stone temples, is this uh, natural double square that actually damps down echoes. It's anechoic, is mm. what they would call it, and it 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 uh, it allows clean propagation of sound. So it's a very practical thing, okay, because somebody can get up there and and uh, chant, or they can talk to the people. And it will carry cleanly. It won't echo and reverb and, and create a bad acoustical environment. So it's a practical thing. Uh, and so in Roslyn, you have this, and you can go in there. Uh, it's one of the things that um, uh, I tested is, you know, you clap your hands, and you find that it doesn't really, doesn't reverberate. Uh, there, it's, it's very clean um, propagation of sound. And within this double square, there is uh, a special area towards, in the case of Rosalind and many other um, uh, temples, there, towards the eastern end, you know, the, the, where the sun rises and, and Venus rises before the sun in the morning. And, and in the east, you know, that's, that's where you will then orient this double square. And at the far eastern end, you'll have uh, what... The, uh, the Hebrews called the Holy of Holies, mm -hmm. uh, the, the end of the temple that is more sacred than the rest. And, uh, and in Roslyn, you, they, they placed three uh, very ornate and very different pillars uh, that sort of separate that Holy of Holies from the rest of the double square. Now, that Holy of Holies are, is is, you know, there's a special altar there in uh, the Solomon tradition. It would be a raised altar. Um, there's a belief that Solomon's temple was built uh, on the uh, Temple Mount in Jerusalem um, <clears throat> and that the Holy of Holies was where the rock, uh, the foundation stone, which was also Jacob's pillow, mm -hmm. uh, where he had the dreams, okay, of... of the ladder uh, to heaven with uh, angels going up and down, and that um, that it was upon that rock that uh, the the uh, the Israelites uh, would sacrifice, you know, uh, to to God, mm -hmm. and even it was even used before the Israelites. A lot of people don't know that uh, the people that that used that foundation stone um, were called the Jebusites, and they followed somebody named Jebus. 
<laughs> you know, seriously. <laughs> really? Real, real men Serious. follow Jeebus. Seriously. <laughs> wow. Just look we could, it up. That's a t-shirt to waiting yourself. to happen. Jeebus Christ. <laughs> and that was, yes, Jeebus. And that was before, <laughs> that was before the Israelites showed up, the Semites, okay? Wow. So, uh, that's a fascinating thing that, that that foundation stone goes way back. And, um, and there's a special area. There's actually a little, um, cave underneath that rock that you can actually see today if you go to the Dome of the Rock, which is Islamic, um, and you, you can, you, there's stairs that go underneath it, and that was called the Well of Souls. Hmm. And uh, the Hebrew priest would sacrifice something on the stone and then go underneath to, uh, to uh, incubate himself, basically, in a cave. And, uh, and it had an acoustical effect, a psychoacoustical effect down there that uh, sounded like the wailing of, uh, you know, souls um, in purgatory. Anyway, I, I diverge, because, but that frames this idea of the Holy of Holies uh, and the three pillars in Roslyn Chapel. Now, the three pillars are uh, symbolic of something uh, that, that go way back in time, uh, and you find it you find it repeated in so many different ways uh, and, and uh, that in different cultures that it, it looks like, okay, this is a really a universal human symbolism. And that is that you have, it's the, it's the Trinity, the Holy Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Uh, but that is never really fully explained uh, in Christian terms. You have to kind of go back further uh, to find out what that meaning is. Well, those three pillars um, are the the two outside pillars on the left and right are the Father and the Son. And in the middle, well, that leaves the Holy Ghost. Well, that was in, in Rosalind, that's, that middle pillar is called the Shekinah. That's the Hebrew name for the feminine presence mm-hmm. in a temple, in a Hebrew temple. And um, they used to, in Hebrew temples, um, have the, the feminine presence represented by originally a, uh, what was called an Asherah pole, mm-hmm. Asherah being uh, one of the Ashtart goddesses, the Hebrew version of the Ashtart goddesses that were popular in Assyria and Canaan and, um, uh, you know, that, that whole region. The, the double square was often dedicated to her as well, just for the record. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Yes. Well, and that's, and, and you know, that's where you really end up finding out that uh, at the top of that trinity really is the f- sacred feminine. <laughs> it's not the right. bottom or the middle. Mm-hmm. It's the top. And uh, because that's the point, you know, the, the feminine is, the, um, is, the, is where life comes from. You know, if you, just in practical terms, you know, you have a baby. It, right. it comes from the the woman, you know, mm-hmm. and so that's the that's perceived as the as the portal, if you will, to uh, to heaven or to other you know higher realms. Right. And so this Shekinah uh, pillar. It was also uh, they, they the Hebrew priests eventually uh, outlawed the uh, Asherah poles, which would sometimes have graven images, you know, of of a woman in it. Uh, and, and it's a wooden pole. It was a wooden pole. Mm-hmm. They got rid of that, and they said, no, we're going to have a column of smoke. 
and that that's the Holy Ghost. Ah, you know, it's the ghost. I did not realize that had replaced it. So the incense actually yes. replaced it. Ah. Oh, okay. Yes, but the incense wasn't just sweet-smelling stuff. They put um, psychoactive things in there as well. Probably cannabis would be one of them. Hmm. Acacia would, my, you know, would be the other. Because acacia, which was called shittim wood, Mm. Uh, of the Hebrews uh, was a sacred wood. And that uh, acacia, if anybody's familiar with that, uh, it has um, high quantities of dimethyltryptamine or DMT, which is a highly, the most psychoactive um, molecule that you can possibly ingest. So So priests be tripping up there. There you go, tripping. It was also used in Egyptian burial rites real frequently, acacia. Yes, and of course the Masons, you know, acacia is... Is a is a big symbol uh, in Masonic ceremonies as well. So anyway, I wouldn't know, Rich. You've got, yeah. <laughs> I, and uh, and and so anyway, you've got the three. You've got the three pillars: the male, you know, father on on the left, the the uh, the uh, if you're facing the Holy of Holies, and you've got the the son on the right, uh, and those are. Uh, are symbolized in Masonic uh, symbolism as, um, you know, as the uh, sun and the moon. Hmm. And you'll often often see those in, in various Masonic uh, diagrams of those two pillars. And those are the two pillars that were said to be outside the door, on either side of the door of Solomon's temple. And so the Shekinah then is the feminine. So you've got the pillars now. In the middle is the doorway that you, so if you were to stand and look into Solomon's temple, you could look all the way into it, mm-hmm. into the Holy of Holies to see not so much uh, necessarily a, a physical pillar, but that's where the ark would be, you know, in, right. in conceptually speaking. So the ark is a feminine womb symbol, mm-hmm. if you will. Mm-hmm. And, um, and uh, the Shekinah is the feminine presence. That's what that is. So, so basically, that's what um, the Hebrew temple was, is it was a, a symbolism of fertility mm-hmm. uh, with you know, the male pillars being the phallic symbols and the, the, the ark or the Shekinah being the womb um, and sort of rebirth symbolism. Oh. Okay, so now the interesting thing about Rosalind that it starts giving you more and more clues, and um, one of those clues is on the base of uh, one of the male pillars, uh, you, you have these dragons, there right. are these serpents. Mm-hmm. Okay, and uh, uh, serpents go way back. Um, you know, it, the more further back you go, the more you find uh, serpent symbolism. Uh, as being uh, a symbol associated with, well, in Vedic lore, it was um, it was the Asuras or these Nagas, these serpent deities. And by the way, the head of and the protector of the Asuras, uh, the serpents, was the goddess of Venus. Oh. So it was a feminine uh, protectress that she was protecting the serpents, and of course. Um, you know, you can imagine the, all the associations of serpents and uh, as right. being um, male, but it, at the same time, you've got this feminine protector of these serpents. So keep that in your mind. So you've got yeah. these dragons uh, or serpents around the base of one of the pillars. Well, 
there's uh, eight of these of these serpents. So when I, I, when I first saw that, I thought, well, okay, that's interesting. But at the same time, you have uh, angels, or they're actually cherubim or puti, as they're called. They're, they're male-winged figures that are carved into the top of the columns um, that, uh, that are all holding uh, different musical instruments. They're all playing different musical instruments. Mm-hmm. And there's 13 of those angels. So you have 13 angels, and you have eight dragons or serpents. Well, the proportion of 13 to 8 is the proportion between Venus and Earth that creates this pentagram in the sky. If you were to trace it, it creates really a a rose petal, five-fold rose petal. But there are five conjunctions uh, then over an eight-year period uh, to to Venus's 13 uh, orbits around the sun. And uh, in, in, in that period of time of eight, eight Earth years, you will have five conjunctions. And if you were to join them, it creates a pentagram around the sun. Wow. Well, now here's what's really mind-blowing, is that these angels are sitting on pentagrams wow. carved into the stone. Wow. Okay? So clearly, uh, Sinclair, who is the, the guy who, uh, the family that that built this, uh, along with Sir Gilbert Hay, uh, who was, um, has a fascinating history to him. He fought alongside Joan of Arc, and he was a, a poet. And uh, poet, poets back then were, you know, were magical people that, had, that were of great knowledge, and he was involved in the design of this. So the symbolisms there are probably due to his understanding of this relationship between Earth and Venus and the pentagram. Wow, where do you, where do, uh, just a quick side note. I mean, this is all very fascinating. Um, but wh- where do you suppose he gained this knowledge from? Do you do you know? Yeah, uh, I- interestingly enough, he um, was the uh, chamberlain, or Sir Gilbert Hay was the chamberlain for uh, Rene d'Anjou in southern France. Ah, I knew we were going to get back there. So yeah, so Rene d'Anjou was the uh, titular king to Jerusalem. He was the king of Avignon. He had all these titles. I mean, this guy had the, had so many titles, uh, royal titles, but he had absolutely no power. He didn't have any control. <laughs> but, but he had this incredible bloodline and, and uh, was highly respected throughout Europe as being, you know, this key figure. And so, uh, so Sir Gilbert Hay was his chamberlain, which is uh, basically a secretary. Uh, would take all his notes. Basically, he tutored, uh, he, you know, uh, it, well, he ended up tutoring the Sinclair's children because he was just considered a very wise man. Uh, but, yes, before he was with Sinclair in Edinburgh, outside of Edinburgh, he was, uh, he was over there with uh, Danjou. And uh, Danjou was, was involved or was friends with the Medici family in oh. Italy. Hmm. So, um, this is my tie yeah. to uh, <laughs> Leonardo uh, da Vinci. This is getting interesting. Yes. Uh huh. Yes. Well, now Ross Chapel, by the way, was built just just before, or it started building before uh, uh, da Vinci was born. Uh, right. In fact, right. Frames right. It is in the fifteenth, mid fifteenth century. So, 
Um, so, but I wanted to tie this, uh, put a bow around this, okay. is that the Medici family, uh, in particular, the, the, the uh, patriarch of the, of the Medici family was Cosimo. Right. And he was big into Mithraic, the Mithraic mm-hmm. mysteries uh, in Rome, or not in Rome, but in Florence, but it was throughout the, uh, the Roman Empire. Um, and, uh, and, and he was convinced by René d'Anjou and probably, uh, probably also um, uh, with the help of uh, Sir Gilbert Hay uh, to, to uh, send people out. Uh, to collect the what was became the medieval Kabbalah, oh. and he put it in um, uh, in in a museum uh, nearby, and um, and that was the first. Uh, I'm not sorry, not a museum, but a library, and it was the first uh, what would be called secular library, non you know uh, specific de- um, religion. Okay. Mm-hmm library in the world. And uh, the Kabbalah, then he sent all these people out. And Sir Gilbert Hay uh, was one of the people that were sent out on a mission to collect some of these old mysteries that had been lost and collect them all into, you know, a a central repository. Uh, And so that, so Sir Gilbert Hay was involved in that process and he had access to all that information and he brought it back and, um, and synthesized it into what became into the architecture and into the design of Roslyn Chapel. So that's what Roslyn really is: is it's a um, you know a, a manifestation or a, a, a creation, a, a historical creation uh, that's essentially all these secret mysteries um, for you know from religious and mystery teachings that have been all put together into one. Built into John, stone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fascinating. It also crosses into science pretty often. Um, you'll see lots of sacred numbers like legitimate hardcore science, but you'll see those numbers occur over and over. In fact, I don't want to I don't want to go too far into this because we need to take a break soon, but uh, you were researching temperatures for resonant frequencies. Why don't, let's take a break now and we'll get All back right. to that. We'll get yeah, back we'll, to we'll talk about on the that. other side. All right. Sounds good. Break okay, down. Thanks. I feel like my chakra is all jammed up. Like my third chakra. Is there any way that we could like do something about that? Well, there's several things that you could do, but maybe one of the easiest is to use a stone that's appropriate to the chakra. Ah, and what would you suggest for that, Joville? I would use amethyst in this particular instance because amethyst has a lot of good ability to help unjam areas that are jammed. And how does that work? Basically, amethyst vibrates at a certain level of frequency, and the chakra does as well. And so the amethyst acts as a sort of frequency adjuster at the chakra. I see. So it raises the frequency of the chakra, with, which helps unjam it? Correct. It makes it flow the way that it should. Do all stones work that way? All of them work on the same principle, but they don't all work in the same wavelength. And where can we find these beautiful stones? Alchemy in Princeton, Kentucky, 112 East Court Square. Awesome. Welcome back. We're talking with Rich Merrick, and I was just about to get into uh, the frequency of 432 and some calculations that Rich had uh, formulated on the basis of Roslyn and it, how it ties into B. So with that set up, I'm going to let him just start to jump in there where he wants Take to. Take it away. Okay. So I think m- many people um, are aware that bees have been used um, as, as a symbol uh, throughout history. Um, 
they, you know, the Merovingians are well known for having thrones, you know, that had giant mm-hmm. bees on mm-hmm. them. And, um, and, uh, the, that if you go even, you know, way back even to the Egyptians that you'll find that bees were, uh, were sacred, uh, and they, you know, honey, uh, was used as a preservative and things like that. So, <clears throat> um, in general, uh, bees were <clears throat> considered the children of, of the goddess of Venus, wh- whatever name uh, a given culture gave uh, to Venus and to the goddess uh, of Venus. Uh, bees were her cherubim, her children. And so uh, the symbol of angels and puti um, are really uh, a sort of um, personified uh, or anthropomorphized uh, bees, uh, you know, if you mm-hmm. if you were to sort of generalize that across all these different cultures. So in Roslyn Chapel, um, there is uh, I, I mentioned that the the central pillar was the Shekinah pillar or the feminine pillar, um, but if you go up above uh, the you know really to the roof of Roslyn Chapel. Uh, it was discovered a few years ago during a restoration of Roslyn that there are two stone beehives that are uh, built uh, directly above the two male, two outer male pillars above the that separate the Holy of Holies um, uh, portion of Roslyn from the rest of the double square I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. So you've got these bees that um, that used to live up there and and now from talking with Melissa here on the break uh, find out that they've got the bees back in there and that's yes. that's fantastic you know the um but what does all that mean you know why do they have bee uh, beehives up there and by the way the entrance to those stone beehives were little five petaled um, roses mm-hmm. and uh, so they'd have this carved rose and then at the center of the bees would go in and out there and uh, and it corresponds to the, these pentagrams that are uh, carved into the uh, the top of the pillars. Well, um, that the angels are sitting on. So again, you've got kind of the rose concept uh, mm-hmm. in the pentagram and in the orbit of, of Venus uh, in the sky over eight years. You'll get a rose type pattern. And uh, so you've got these these angels uh, playing instruments, which if you just think resonance whenever you see the the uh the instruments then you can think of the bee buzz mm. or the buzz of the bees uh and the the angels are the bees and they're sitting on the rose or they're hovering above the rose which is the pentagram so that's the symbolism that you have in those uh in those pillars and above you've got actual beehives and in, and uh the the stories are that uh, honey would even uh run down uh, the two male pillars, hmm. um, so you can you can easily <laughs> understand the fertility aspects mm-hmm. of that. That the honey is uh, symbolic of of uh, insemination, mm-hmm. and that uh, the the bees are the children of Venus. And in the in the center of these three pillars is the Asherah pole or the Shekinah, the feminine presence that connects to. Uh, to the planet Venus. Why is Venus so important? You know, well, um, I mentioned that the 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 father and son were the um, sun and the moon. Well, Venus was the feminine aspect, 
of the Trinity. And it, and why was it feminine? Or well, it would it would always rise in the east in the morning before the sun. It was the torch or the jewel in the sky. And you know, I I didn't really pay much attention to that until I studied this. And now I see. Every uh, when I get up in the mornings, uh, much of the year, I'll I'll see Venus up there, and and uh, she was uh, uh, seen as the resurrector of the sun, mm-hmm. and she was the torch, sort of lighting the way, and that she had this golden chariot uh, pulled by lions. Okay, so there's this mm-hmm. lion symbolism also mm-hmm. that um, that you see in temple lions and guardians, uh, the Sphinx, and so forth different cultures and you have this uh, that was the steed of venus and it pulled the golden chariot that pulled the sun across the sky the sun god whatever the name of the sun god is pulled across the sky and then into the underworld um at the end of the day and and so the morning star uh and the evening star were originally thought of as two different entities and the egyptians uh, called one uh, lusa the morning star and the evening star was set and when they realized that the two were the same, they called it Lucicet. Ah. <laughs> and that was really the, the uh, precursor to Isis, not the, not the terrorist group, the goddess. Right. And, uh, and all of these other, you know, Ashtart gods, uh, Asherah and, and um, Anahit, and there's so many uh, that were associated with the planet Venus. Which he was turned into Lucifer. Yes, Lucifer is actually um, the Latin name for the light bringer, which was the morning star. Mm-hmm. And she brought the light. And Set was traditionally the warlike god of the desert that no one liked. Yes, but that was, again, associated with the evening star. And, and that's where, by the way, uh, there got to be some blending or overlap of the uh, star, the evening star with the moon, or the feminine aspect of the evening star with the moon, which originally was the male, hmm. um, uh, the sun, okay. and uh, and so you've got this uh, a little bit of a blending into and a whole line of goddesses associated with the moon that really is kind of a uh, rubs off from the evening star, uh, which was the original feminine. Mm-hmm. At any rate, so you've got this, uh, get back to the bees and the resonance and that sort of thing. Um, so you've got the, the, the children of Venus that are literally living up there uh, above the two male pillars and inseminating the, uh, the, mm. the holy of holies. <laughs> and uh, You've got to have a hobby. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and the uh, feminine presence in the center. And, uh, and so it, it was interesting to find out. So now we're going to talk about acoustics. Um, I, I wanted to find out what the prime resonant frequency uh, would be for, uh, for Rosalind Chapel. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's built uh, in, in particular dimensions, multiples of, of 18 feet um, uh, in, in all directions because it's a double square. Um, and uh, there's also a, an elevated choir area ab- above the main um, congregation area where people sit. Uh, and I wanted to know the dimensions. Uh, you know, I, I found out the dimensions of all that. And the way I found out, by the way, is because uh, there's been a, a great deal of controversy about the exact dimensions. Well, the, uh, 
uh, University of Edinburgh actually used laser scanning uh, to scan the interior of Roslyn Chapel, and I got I, I got access to their data and got their permission uh, to use it in the Venus Blueprint so that I had accurate measurements. So yeah. it's it's not hypothetical anymore. It's we know exactly right. what the dimensions are. That's important because that's the only way you can you're going to find out uh, the the resonant frequencies of the chamber. Mm-hmm. And so uh, at at room temperature, um, uh, the uh, and I've got to I've got to remember this exactly. The room temperature uh, at room temperature in, in Edinburgh, which is um, about about seventy degrees. Um, uh, in the summer, okay, that's room temperature, and of course it's a stone. It's a stone uh, chapel, so it tends to be a little cooler. But but you know by the end of the summer, everything is pretty much equalized out, and it's and it's around seventy degrees. Uh, at that point, the uh, I, I was kind of expecting you know four thirty two hertz or uh, um, you know maybe four forty. Who knew? Yeah, I didn't know what it would be. And, and I used the equation to figure out, you know, because temperature affects uh, frequency, mm-hmm. um, uh, the, the speed at which um, uh, waves move through the air. And you're inside a particular chamber of certain size, you know, so um, size, and that you've got uh, uh, the sound propagating through that air at a certain speed, at a certain temperature, and use the equation uh, to figure out these things. And the prime resonant frequency was about... 422 um, hertz. I thought, well, I've never heard of 422 hertz. Nobody's even talking about 422 hertz Mm -hmm. Uh, until I actually researched it. And lo and behold, I find out that that's called classical tuning that was used uh, during, um, you know, uh, the Mozart used it, the German Mm. symphony used it, it was used in uh, French um, tuning uh, around 422, 423 hertz, and uh, the first tuning fork uh, was tuned to that four, uh, 422. Ah, okay. And I thought, well, okay, so great. Here's a here's a frequency that nobody's talking about that uh, that Rosalind Chapel seems to be tuned to. Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. You know. So if you were to try to find the that resonant frequency, um, where that would resonate perfectly within that uh, within Rosalind Chapel, it would be 422 um, or uh, 211 hertz. It would be uh, it would be uh, some octave. It, any octave will resonate mm-hmm. you know, with that prime fr- resonant frequency. And uh, and I thought, okay, well, at room temperature, that's the resonant frequency. Um, however, I wondered. I, I, I asked myself. Well, uh, what about this 432, you know? Uh, what temperature would the inside of Rosalind Chapel have to be in order to resonate with 432, okay? And that mm-hmm. was important because 432 um, uh, can be factored by 18. In other words, the, the feet, which are, you know, English imperial feet, um, uh, would then have the same numero- numerological properties as the, uh, the the actual prime resonant frequency. You see, if you heated up the the air inside and uh, and 
you know, uh, and played 432 in there to, to resonate, what temperature would that need to be? Well, I, so I, I sort of used the same equation, just solved it differently and found out that the, uh, the temperature would need to be uh, uh, about 93 degrees. Whoa. Pretty warm, pretty ah. darn warm. But here's the fascinating thing about 93 degrees is that uh, I thought, well, I wonder what 93, is there anything out there? Because it's not, certainly not 98.7, you know, or it's not, mm. or, or it's not, a, it's not a, a human kind of number. And I, I, I looked out there and lo and behold, that's the temperature, 93 degrees is the temperature that bees have to create to gestate their young. Oh, very interesting. <laughs> uh, just let that sink in for a minute. Yeah, that's fascinating. How could that be? I mean, it could be any other number. It's right. not. It's 93 degrees, and that's the number. That's the, huh. that's the temperature it has to be inside Rosalind Chapel in order for it to resonate 432 hertz. Which was uh, 33 Celsius, right, Rich? Yes. Oh, wow. Okay, so here we are. We go to Rosalind Chapel, and we're going to heat it up to uh, 93 degrees. What's going to happen to us inside that chapel? <laughs> That's what I want. Well, what's okay, what's so, the practical so, application here? Yeah. So um, there is this legend that Rosalind Chapel was on fire. Hmm. And uh, it was seen by all of the people, because it's up on a little hill, you know. Yeah. And uh, in Rosalind Glen, uh, there were other people that could see this. And so there's this legend in that part of Scotland that Rosalind Chapel was, uh, was in flames. And that the people that were there were seeing um, spirits in the smoke and, and red fire inside a uh, Rosalind Chapel. So what year a, was that? Do you know, Rich? What year did so, that happen? Um, there isn't a particular year associated okay. with that. Uh, however, the legend was that it was during a uh, funeral of uh, of one or maybe you know different. Maybe it happened multiple times, but uh, it was associated with the uh, rites, the burial rites of a Rosalind Baron, I mean, a, a Sinclair Baron. Whoa. And that all of those barons were uh, buried down in the crypt, uh, which is, um, well, uh, it, it's, it's off the sacristy underground. So there's an underground part of Rosalind. Uh, it was a whole fascinating thing to talk about. But it's a sealed crypt, and that was in, in there where these Rosalind barons that were just buried laying on tables with their, all their you know, armament and their red caps and so forth. And that, um, that apparently this fire aspect, this fire thing, um, uh, occurred uh, during these funerary rites. Well, you know, um, Edinburgh, or Scotland, not just Edinburgh, but uh, it's centered in Edinburgh, uh, Scotland has this old, these old Beltane uh, mm-hmm. celebrations, mm-hmm. which is the celebration that goes back to Bel or Baal, the um, Baal Hadad mm-hmm. of the uh, um, of uh, the Canaanite god, and um, you know, the, back into really um, uh, you know several thousand years ago. Well, these, this fire, this fire celebration is still going on uh, every year. They have it, 
and people they they get tortures uh, torches uh, they light torches they get naked and they run. <laughs> wow, yeah, that's the Beltane celebration. All right, sounds like a good time. <laughs> I, I'm guessing there's probably a lot of drinking before I, that. I'm I could, guessing. Uh, I think I've seen that happen a few times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, so they so there's this tradition there of this sort of fire festival, and um, and so it, I hypothesize that uh, there was. Uh, a warming of Roslyn Chapel up to 93 degrees to get it into a sacred zone, the sacred mm. Venus B mm-hmm. hive uh, gestation zone, and that uh, the music that is um, uh, associated with the the cubes that, that we haven't discussed, but that uh, that uh, the Stuart and Tommy Mitchell uh, have discovered and. Uh, decoded as being musical symbols that are, you know, uh, resonance mm-hmm. symbols uh, that are up. They're also carved up there with the uh, the angels and the pentagrams and the top of the the arches of the of the three pillars. That uh, that they would perhaps play this music as sacred music in a heated uh, uh-huh. sacred space to help launch the yeah. spirits of their of the barons, the dead barons. Up into the sky, use you know, invoking Venus, uh, the goddess of Venus, as a guide to take them to heaven. Wow, that is amazing! Wow, that's very cool information. We're we're going to stop right here for a second and come back to this, and then probably wrap it up. But wow, okay, that's awesome. We'll be right back. And welcome back to Nearly Sacred. We're speaking with Rich Merrick, author of The Venus Blueprint and a few other books. Um, and so we were discussing, uh, Rich, uh, uh, some interesting facts about Rosalind Chapel and uh, some funerary rites and um, proportions. And um, uh, so let's talk about a little bit more about how Rosalind Chapel is set up to the um, divine proportion of humanity. Okay, sure. So uh, I mentioned the double square, and um, we've talked about it as a psychoacoustical space or a, a space that um, that has certain acoustical qualities that uh, uh, that have an effect on on the people who are in there. Uh, the deeper that I uh, began to look into the 
the actual architecture, uh, floor plan and architecture of Rosalind Chapel, the more I realized that it would that it expressed um, a number of other things, uh, geometrical things, uh, what people would uh, call sacred geometry, which makes sense since it's a sacred space and and so forth. And so I wanted to know more about that. And there's been other people that have uh, looked into this as well. Uh, what I found was that the the various parts of the chapel the, and the dimensions, the facade of the chapel, uh, the original facade, um, were all based on um, a set of what I would call harmonic geometrical structures or, or uh, structures that fit together to create a sense of harmony. Uh, the, if you look at the height and the, the width of the facade, for instance, you get the uh, the triangle uh, that that you find in the Great Pyramid, mm. uh, which is based on a golden ratio proportion of height to base. Uh, and then if you take that same triangle, that same sort of pyramidal triangle, and lay it down uh, into the church, you know, into the chapel itself, the point lands right at the Shekinah pillar at the Holy of Holies. Mm-hmm. So that's... Um, the proportion of the the way the whole chapel, both the uh, the front as well as the floor plan, actually fit together, kind of like a puzzle. And if you keep going, um, you start uh, you start to realize that there's circles and squares. You know, the squaring of the circle that you that you find uh, uh, popularized in Leonardo da Vinci's uh, Vitruvian Man uh, is actually. Uh, right there in the organization or the geometry of uh, Rosalind Chapel. Mm. And at the center of it is this Shekinah pillar. So it's like, um, it's, it's, it's like uh, all these different sacred geometries of squaring you know, the circle to the square, uh, whether you're talking about the perimeter and the, radi- or the circumference, or you're talking about the areas. Uh, there's different, all of these things fit together into this interlocking uh, sacred geometry uh, that Rosalind Chapel is built according to. Now, there's more to it than that. There's, um, as I came to find out, uh, and, and it really is highlighted, when you go down underground into the sacristy, that's underneath uh, the eastern end of the uh, chapel. There's uh, some stairs that go down there. And um, when you go down in there, it's a very plain um, area. The sacristy is where uh, church relics and other um, uh, other things that you need for services are usually kept. And there is a fireplace down there, um, mm-hmm. which... Um, I hypothesize could potentially be used to heat up the entire uh, interior. It just you just have to burn it a long time, and the heat would rise and go up and and gradually heat the chapel. But uh, on one wall uh, is a sealed opening into uh, into the uh, crypt where the Rosalind or the Sinclair Barons uh, were buried. And I don't know if they still are or not, um, but it's sealed. Uh, and there's diagrams that are, um, you know, um, etched onto the walls. Mm-hmm. Uh, so astro- astronomical type of things, uh, um, 
some arch design and then a strange, uh, a strange, very strange sort of um, oil derrick looking uh, diagram uh, is uh, carved into the wall directly across from the, uh, the, the sealed opening to the crypt. I'll get back to that in a minute, but I wanted to, to say one more thing about the sacristy, and that is there at the far end, the far eastern end, is a little opening um, into a small, a very small room. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's almost like, it's really a closet, and they kind of almost use it like a, well, a closet. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it, 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 nobody really understands it, but... but um, the interesting thing is when you take uh, the Vitruvian man, the, the Da Vinci's famous uh, figure of proportions, and you lay it down so that the navel of the figure is the Shekinah pillar, then the head of the Vitruvian man is exactly where this little closet is hmm. off of the sacristy underground. Interesting. So it's like you're inside the head <laughs> of the Vitruvian man when you're standing in that. Wow. And one time, uh, I, uh, it was, um, uh, and I described this in the Venus Blueprint, I managed to sort of break away because uh, I was speaking in the chapel. And, but before we did that, we had a little time, and I uh, just sort of snuck off by myself and went down into the sacristy and went into that little room to sort of meditate a little bit, to just... Think about the the here I was in the brain of this uh, of this figure. Now, by the way, I want to point out that uh, Leonardo da Vinci was uh, wasn't an adult. He wasn't. He was barely, He was born during the building of Rosalind Chapel. So they didn't. The Vitruvian man that he drew was not available when they designed this chapel. Right. Yet. The Vitruvian man fits perfectly into the geometry of the of the chapel, right? Which means he probably just got a hold of the same knowledge. Well, that... it comes from Vitruvius, uh, right. which is a Roman architect uh-huh. uh, from the first century A.D. And uh, Vitruvius got it, got the you know the idea of building uh, of of human proportions being an architectural foundation from much 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 older temple building traditions. Uh, in particular, the Vedics, uh, the, or Proto-Vedic um, uh, uh, ideas that you would build a temple according to human proportions uh, as sort of a, a transmitter or a transceiver from the human body to, you know, the heavens. Hmm. Well, so I, I, wanted to, I wanted to mention this this because it connects back to that symbol that I said was etched on the wall uh, across from the crypt. That symbol, uh, as I uh, researched, because nobody had really figured out what that symbol was, it, it essentially looked like an oil derrick with a little cup at the top, or what might be a cup. And then coming out of the middle of the cup was this um, a line that uh, then has uh, what looked to be, you know, three little waves uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> or serpents or something, almost hermetic symbolism integrated into it. It was It's a very unusual thing, and, and I, I show a picture and describe that in, in the Venus Blueprint, but you can see it in person if you go to Roslyn and go down and, yeah, and once you get it. at the bottom of the stairs, just look yeah. to the right. and I saw it. I, I, was, I was very intrigued by it. Well, what I what I believe it is, and what it makes uh, perfect sense, uh, is uh, 
uh, I found a match to it. Um, it's a tower. Uh, and I found a match to that general organization uh, in a Jain book, a J-A-I-N. It's, a, it's kind of a Buddhist or a Vedic uh, sect or religion, Jainism. And, uh, and it, it's called Mount Maru. And uh, even though it doesn't look like a mountain, it looks like a tower, uh, that was, the tower was a, a, a representation of this sacred transcendental mountain that's introduced uh, first initially in the Rig Veda, which is far older than the other Vedas. And they don't even know exactly where it originated. Hmm. Uh, but this idea that there is a transcendental, or let's call it an invisible, mountain or tower that goes up, um, it's described fully in the Rig Veda, it goes up uh, from earth into space, and at the top of this tower slash mountain are the gods, okay, that's, the, that's heaven or Svarga or, you know, there's different, different names for this um, mountaintop, and above the mountaintop uh, is, lo and behold, Venus, who's hovering above it <laughs> to protect it, mm. just like Athena protects the, the Acropolis in, in Athens. Uh, this concept of the Venusian goddess uh, protecting uh, earth or protecting the sacred mountain uh, is sort of a universal symbolism. And out of that comes um, all kinds of temples that are tower-like, whether it's a pyramid uh, or it's um, a Vedic stupa or it's a, a ziggurat or a pagoda or a cathedral. You know, all of these uh, go back to this, uh, this idea of a sacred mountain. That's why uh, churches or temples or, or ca cathedrals, wherever they can, sacred places are put on mountaintops, even if they're just little hills, you know. They're better than being down in the valley or somewhere else because right. you're closer to heaven. Well, this mountain symbolism um, is, is part of the pyramid symbolism, stepped pyramids that you find around the world. Um, and all of these things come back to, and there's other scholars that say this, not just me, they come back to the original symbolisms of the Vedic stupa, uh, which is this idea that uh, you've got a sacred mountain surrounded by the cosmic egg. Um, so some stupas actually are little humps. Uh, if you look at, uh, if you look at, um, any uh, capital buildings or uh, basilicas like the Vatican a basilica right. or um, other the domes. Uh, domes. Any kind of dome structure is a Vedic stupa. And at the top, uh, you know, these, this idea of a steeple uh, where you have a bell tower, well, in Vedic symbolism, uh, that is the, the, um, you know, the top of the pyramid that's sticking through uh, that's sticking up through the top of the cosmic egg, uh, which is the universe, or the world egg sometimes is called. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and in Buddhist symbolism, that's the ushnisha, which is the protuberance at the top of the brain. So there's the human body or the Buddha symbol is coincident with the stupa symbolism, and consciousness is rising up out of the the top of the pyramid, the top of the cosmic egg, and it becomes what in Vedic um, terminology is called the harmaka, which is open, like your mind would be opened. And uh, the bell would ring. That's the resonance that we've been talking about. 
And the harmaka is is your bell tower. It's your belfry ah. in a in a in a uh, cathedral. When you ring the bell, you're essentially you know uh, releasing or liberating your consciousness huh. from the body. Excellent. Okay, and so then the then there's on top of that there's the thing uh, in Vedic um, symbolism called the world tree, uh, which is like a Christmas tree. Okay. That goes up, and then at the top of that is what's called the parasol, which is um, the the only word that they have in Sanskrit for mushroom. Okay, so you have a mushroom at the top of the tree. Shrooms. Yes, and uh, then above the parasol, then is the whole, is the Vedic Trinity, which is the moon, a crescent moon, uh, that's with the horns pointing up, and uh, the sun, and then at the very top you have the jewel. Or the torch, which is Venus. So at the very top of the Vedic uh, steeple uh, in a stupa is Venus. And again, connecting back to all the Venus symbolism that you find in Rosalind. Okay. So there's wow. a lot of connections there. Uh, a lot of things that you see that are Vedic related, uh, you know, or Venus related in Rosalind, and it can go all the way back in all of these different um, uh, uh, temple-building traditions that it goes back to Vedic uh, symbolisms and with the, the Trinity, with Venus, the female Venus at top. Now, <clears throat> the word Venus is a, is, is a Roman word for uh, Aphrodite. Mm -hmm. uh, the Romans renamed Aphrodite to Venus for a reason because there was they knew what where Aphrodite actually originated, and that is the goddess the 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 Vedic goddess Vena. That was her name, Vena, mm -hmm. and she was a sky goddess that was the Brahmanical or the that's like Brahma, mm -hmm. the creative Brahmanical feminine aspect of the planet Venus. Mm -hmm. uh, which the which is named Shukra, <clears throat> but Vena. There's actually a hymn to Vena, and it describes uh, this whole sort of fertility aspect, a relationship with the sun. Okay, so um, so Vena. Uh, there is a scholar by the name of Subhash Kak, <laughs> which I love that name, <laughs> but he. <laughs> He's done. He's done some great writings. Just you can't miss it. Just look up subhash cac, <laughs> k a k. <laughs> you know, you'll find some great stuff. But he um, uh, he he claims that the word Vedic uh, actually comes from the same you know from Vena and Venus uh, and the Vedas. All of these V words are all related to the sacred feminine which is at the top of this um, Vedic trinity. So you have, uh, you know, all of your Eastern religions that are based uh, or founded and derived from uh, the original Vedic core of the, of the Rig Veda. And, um, and, uh, and you find that, uh, in fact, the same Vedic concepts filtered down through Zoroastria, Zoroastrianism, mm -hmm. Down into Mesopotamia, the gods and goddesses, you know, Anahit and uh, Vaughn and some of these other um, 
um, Armenian slash Anatolian gods uh, that they filtered down uh, into Sumer and into Egypt. I mean, you actually have Armenian. Uh, Nefertiti was an Armenian queen. There was a line of really? Armenian queens or king, uh, king, kings and queens in uh, pharaohs in uh, Egypt. I did not know that. Yeah, and uh, and you just keep you keep going. You find out that well, all of the Canaanite gods are related to these Vedic uh, gods and goddesses as well. So there's the temple building traditions, the gods and goddesses, uh, the astrotheological connections, and now I would add one more thing, and that is entheological. Um, entheogens is a new fancy word for uh, psychoactive. Uh, plants or fungi shrooms well yeah shrooms <laughs> would be one but there's a whole series of them there's, there's um you know you can go to um uh, look, just look up uh entheogens and you'll find all kinds of websites and books and information about uh plants of the gods and these were uh mixed in different ways at different times by different cultures depending on what they had available in their region uh, into different kinds of um, bread or uh, uh, oftentimes wine concoctions or maybe milk uh, as a base, but uh, they would they would blend things like ayahuasca is in South America. Well, mm-hmm. that concept is found around the world in different ways um, in different cultures as being the elixir of immortality or you know so many epitaph um, names for this. Uh, communion. And that's really what we have today. Um, It's just the actual psychoactive aspects of the communion have been slowly stripped away um, from the wine base in in the Christian tradition to now, you know, to being grape juice. And, (laughs) you know, wow, yeah, there's (laughs) so the original idea that you would drink or eat a substance that would allow you to visualize uh, you know, the gods are looking to heaven has just disappeared and been suppressed and is only in um, recent years. I mean, there's, there have been people that have been saying this for all along, but it's only beginning to really get out into mass consciousness today that really the, the heart of religion, uh, in, in, whether it's Eastern or Western, is in these entheological communion practices with psychoactive plants and fungi. Right. And um, we could get into a whole entire um, subject of just just that right there and, and, you know, the history of why that was stripped away and what's happened and, and now how it's coming back and the fear of it, actually, that, um, you know, people don't understand it and they misrepresent it by using it uh, recreationally and, you know, you get into hippies and fooling around with it, but it's actually to be used as a sacred. Well, both sex and drugs right sex and drugs but and music (laughs) all of it you know i mean really well that's exactly yeah sex drugs and rock and roll roll, right (laughs) it's a modern uh, transliteration of what religion once was right (laughs) we need to bring the new one back the old or i guess the old one make the old new again what's yeah what's doc was sort of right kind of (laughs) almost right so so um so this segues into what my new book is about I mean, you can imagine that with all of these things and and others uh, rolling around in my head um, after the Venus Blueprint, that I was looking for a way to 
um, to help synthesize all these different things because that's really what we're talking about. I mean, think about it. We're talking about uh, symbolism. We're talking about architecture. We're talking about acoustics. We're talking about music. We're talking about uh, planets, uh, astrotheological concepts of uh, deities associated with those things in the sky. We're talking about uh, uh, psychoactive communions mm -hmm. uh, that, uh, that help you see deities of, of one sort or another. We're, we're touching on so many different things and uh, you know, various physics and natural phenomenon um, right here on Earth, like a rose being you know, an instantiation of the rose of Venus, which was called Rosalind or Rosabelle right. okay, as the rose. Um, so, uh, there's all these things and I was looking for a way to synthesize those for people in a way that could help them, um, comprehend those relationships. And so the best way to do that is through story and, uh, you know, identifiable characters that are having conversations with one another and experiencing things and doing things. So my new book is called the Vajra sequence. It's a fiction book that is, uh, all based on actual uh, experiences that people have had and actual science, um, uh, sciences for altering states of reality. Uh, and I, uh, I hypothesize in this, um, uh, through character and story, the development of a new science of psychonautics that's based on um, what I call entheotech, which is a combination of ancient entheogenic communion practices combined with modern scientific technologies uh, to, that modify uh, brain and, and uh, consciousness, states of mind. And that I hypothesize a new science that, uh, that is born out of the combination of these two that um, allows the psychonautic exploration of other dimensions. And the effect wow. that those have on world affairs. Oh, man. When is this book out? Because I can't <laughs> wait to read it. <laughs> well, so it's going through uh, editing right now. And I'm hoping either later this year or early next year. Excellent. And we should say that you also wrote the Venus Blueprint as well as Interference Theory. Yes. Right. Yeah. So, so the, the, you know, for... For people to get their their arms around this, the, it all began with questions about music perception, mm. and then the moving into the physics of harmonics, the physics of acoustics, the symbolisms associated uh, over history, and the use of that of those tools in religious uh, ritual, and then I was uh, inexorably drawn into asking the question, well, if they're resonating people's minds inside these stone temples with all kinds of symbols and things like that, what are they trying to do? Well, they're trying to alter their state of mind to be more religious, to communicate. I mean, religion means to relink. That's, the, that's what the meaning of the word mm -hmm. means. They're trying to relink their consciousness with God. Uh, and uh, And the the means to do that was the communion was the elixir the ambrosia you know the oh, yeah. and they had these initiation uh, ceremonies and 
uh, funerary rites uh, where, and various conjunctions with planets where they would then take these communions to help see the gods. Wow. Well, this is all very, uh, I mean, it's a lot to take in. We've gone over our, our normal uh, time limit, but I think it was important that we were able to kind of wrap this all up and bring it about, um, hopefully for uh, people to start um, noshing on it, you know, and digesting it. And um, I believe that it's actually coming as such as a time as this, um, we're starting to see kind of the crumbling away of the old um uh, whatever you want to call it, society, paradigm, paradigm yeah, whatever, and kind of a, a new freedom or, you know, which was discussed in, you know, the coming of the age of Aquarius. And I think that the only way that that can happen is to go back, but also combining it with what we know now. So, um, That's right. yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, reading this book. And um, I thank you for um, coming on our show. And I, I definitely would like to have you come back again. Maybe we can uh, play around a little bit with some French mystery stuff because that gets really interesting, uh, and I'd like to hear your views on that as well. Uh, well, I really appreciate you inviting me, and uh, I've really enjoyed this. And, and I would look, like to do uh, another session with you and explore, you know, deeper into particular areas. That'd be a lot of fun. Yeah, I've had a great time. Uh, you know, that that'd be about it. I think Joe Bill's gonna uh, go ahead and wrap this up, and uh, thank you again. Yes, thanks for coming on the show, uh, Rich. We appreciate it. And I, I would say that my observation that I would add is that for anyone that's of a skeptical bent, this is where science and spirituality can meet so that you don't necessarily just have to accept something on blind faith. You can actually experiment with it, mathematically play with it. It's not something that's just given to you that you have to accept on just blind premise. Did you I, say skeptical Ben? Because I think I heard skeptical Ben. Skeptical. <laughs> That's Skep an inside joke. Skeptical bend. So <laughs> anyway, I think that's an important part of this. And I do think that it's very important to marry uh, the science that we have built up, um, you know, in many different ways to this older stuff so that the two of them are working in harmony. I think it's the only way we can bring about healing. Right. Because that's how it was to start with. Anyway. Right. So, uh, but again, you've, you've definitely developed it out. And um, in I, a nine year, nonetheless, you're going to release it, right? Right. Uh, you've definitely developed it out. And I appreciate your coming on the show and delineating those views for us. Yeah, thanks so much. Well, thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks, Rich. And that's it for Nearly Sacred this week. Um, we will get back with you and I'm going to sign out. Signing out. No episode is complete without the reading of the credits. And so for this week, we have music by C. David by J. Estate, Emiro Raw Yibra, Everyday Bell Chimes and Standing Wave, Falcate Classical B by John Parkham, and Rosalind Motet by Stuart Mitchell. I'm going to throw you on over into Melissa's capable hands. And if you would like to hear more about Rich Merrick and his works, you can find him at interferencetheory.com where you can purchase his books, Interference Theory, The Venus Blueprint, and his up-and-coming, The Vajra Sequence. We're looking forward to our next week's guest, which would be Court Lindahl. Join us when we explore the secrets of the universe. And if you have any further questions, be sure to email us at askus at nearlysacred.com or at nearlysacred at gmail.com. This is Joe Bill Schertzinger signing out.